Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as most popular podcast platforms. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Thanks so much for tuning in. Over the course of this program, we'll cover a variety of topics. We'll get more into the Giants' 2020 regular season schedule, some of the main takeaways regarding the structure of that schedule. A little bit later on, we will answer some of your submitted questions, so stay tuned for that. But we start with some larger NFL subjects as well as a review of the Giants offseason. And that brings us to our guest today, none other than NFL columnist for Newsday, Bob Glover. Bob, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Uh, everything is good. I appreciate the uh, shout out and we're just, just hanging in like everybody else. So hopefully everyone there is good and uh, best wishes really to everybody. Absolutely. Well, that is certainly good to hear. Bob, I noticed in your most recent column, and this gets into the big debate within the NFL right now as to whether or not the season is going to be able to start on time and things that they're looking into, is about how the NFL is monitoring a German soccer league to see what they're doing to get back up and running. So how much is the NFL sort of keeping an eye on some of these other professional sports leagues as a guide to what may come down the road here? Uh, Lance, they're keeping a very close eye on everything that's going on around the world. Um, I was speaking to one of the NFL uh, vice presidents of communication, Brian McCarthy, over the weekend, and you know, Brian says they even have like they're studying everything and certainly looking very closely at the Bundesliga, which is the German soccer league, which is supposed to start up on Saturday. Um, they're even getting translations from protocols of sports in international. Uh, places so like I, I think they're getting the Korean version, the South Korean version of what the protocol is for getting baseball restarted. Korea is probably the, the biggest success story at this point, although they're fighting perhaps uh, the beginning of a second wave of, of infection. As far as soccer goes, uh, the Bundesliga is supposed to start up this Saturday, and I found that to be pretty amazing. That you know, the, Europe has been so badly hit by the virus. And, but Germany is really ahead of most countries in terms of how they went about testing, who they tested. Their protocols were much more advanced, and, and they were much more ahead of the curve than a lot of other countries, honestly, including the United States. We're still struggling to just figure this whole thing out. Um, but the Bundesliga is scheduled to start up. There's already one team in their second tier uh, from Dresden that has three positive cases among the players, so they may have to delay their start. So, guys, this is a tremendously complex um, situation moving forward. Uh, the NFL does have the benefit of time more than the other leagues. Obviously, you know, hockey and basketball on pause and baseball unable to start their league. So the NFL does have that advantage, but we just don't know until we see what's happening in September whether we're going to see that. Um, Bob, as much as the other, the other part of it, sorry, the other part of it is that you know you got to get training camps over. It's not like you flip a switch and oh, September tenth, here we go. Let's let's go play <laughs> football. You know, you have to have it a couple of certainly several weeks before in order to have training camp to get these players ready. Bob, as much as the, the NFL wants to look at the German soccer league for some, some leadership here, or at least uh, to set some type of example, how many similarities logistically do you believe there are relating to? what they're going to try to do with the soccer league and the national football. We know there's more hitting, obviously, and there are more players involved in the NFL because it seems to me there are so many stark differences. I don't know how much they really can kind of build off of what they're going to do in Germany. Yeah, I, I totally get that, and you're right. I mean, the collision rate in the NFL is 11 on 11 every single play. In soccer, it's 11 on 11, but, you know, they're not hitting each other as much. They are coming into close contact, so there is you know, there is this interaction of, of people um, in an unprotected fashion that they can study. And the other thing, Paul, that I think is more crucial to what the NFL is thinking about is how they get the, the teams and the players and the venues ready. And mm -hmm. that is where the testing part comes in. And the Germans have been very advanced as far as testing. And, for instance, this, um, this team from Dresden, they get three players tested positive, I believe, on Saturday. Um, and then they, they have to quarantine those players, and they, and they remove them. And that's what the NFL would have to do. Now, it's totally, and what you bring up is completely appropriate. Like, you know, the level of contact in, in a football practice, no less a game, is much more intense than, than in a soccer game. So, yes, there are, there are certain, 
and, and Brian McCarthy was making that point. It's like, you know, there are differences in our game. And he even brought up, like, you got to get 90 players into training camp, right? So people are going to be in close proximity. And think about this, too. It's not just the players, right? Now, the coaches have to be with the players. They're interacting in meeting rooms and stuff. And, you know, many of these coaches, some of the better coaches are older coaches who are in this, quote-unquote, more vulnerable um, position. I mean, Bill Belichick, I believe, is 68 years old. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're talking about a highly complicated set of factors that you've got to deal with and trying to, to organize things and just trying to, you know, move forward with a sport. You're, look, at, look at how difficult it is to open up the complexes, right? So by May 15th, the NFL is supposed to have their protocols ready for reopening just the facilities. Right. And, I mean, look how, and look how complicated that is. So it's a it's a real challenge um, to, uh, to you know to to figure that out and to figure out the logistics. And you can imagine what it's going to be like ramped up to get ready for games. Bob, I'm glad you brought up the point about May 15th and how the protocols have been laid out to open up the facilities because the one thing the NFL had emphasized before that recent letter was distributed was the importance of maintaining competitive balance and equal playing field, meaning we're not going to allow teams to go back to the facilities unless everybody can go back. But right now, as you well know, different segments of the country are dealing with this at a very different rate. So has that been sort of thrown out the window, or is that still a main priority for the NFL? No, great question, and that has not been thrown out the window. And really where the rubber is going to meet the road on this is when the players come back. And I think what the NFL teams are doing now is, yes, you can you can get your administrators back, you can get your general manager, coaching staff, get them back, and, and perhaps that is a, you know an advantage uh, competitively in some way, but when it's once the players are able to come back. And now if, say, California and New York and New Jersey are still under strict quarantine or still under strict supervision and limitations for that, then if you see teams allowing players to come back before other teams, then you've got a problem. But I think the NFL is, is mindful of that, and I, and I think they are trying to arrange a situation where no team goes in first or has a, an advantage of the other and that's why the competitive balance is very important and I, I commend the league for and Roger Goodell for, for doing that and being mindful of that and the competition committee was very very adamant about there not being competitive advantages and I think they will hold to that but you know that could change because they, they may be so desperate to get a season underway but I do think that they will make arrangements that all the players can come back at the same time Bob, I think it's one thing to say in a best-case scenario, this is how it's going to work, and to put it down on paper, it can look pretty good. But what's the reality with the player base? Do you think there's going to be much reluctance amongst the players that there may be guys who really don't want to come back because they have issues with this whole thing? There's no question about it, Paul. I think you're seeing that You know, some players have even voiced that um, – I forget who it was, but one player, it sounded a little funny based on, not funny, but awkward, based on how you know, dangerous the, the actual sport of football is. And the player said, you know, I, I think we don't want to come back until we know it's safe. Now, safe is obviously a relative term in football, right? You, you know, you're not going to get it. All things being equal, there's no coronavirus. You, you're going to say a player only wants to go back when it's safe. Well, Football is not really a safe game, but that's the level of concern. I mean, that's how that's an example of the concern that the players do have, that they want it to be safe for everybody. And, you know, testing is going to be probably, you know, the pathway to this. And that's why we, we keep hear, hearing the experts say, we've got to ramp up testing, got to have testing, testing and tracing. So you can figure out who has it, you know, what people those whoever has it has been in contact with and then you remove those people from you know the, the playing field or the society uh, for that 14-day quarantine period and go from there but honestly it's just so there's so many people involved in an organization you guys you know you're you're in the building i think of how many people are in the giants building yeah. every day of every week and then add players to that who are in close quarters um it's a it's a highly complicated situation and 
you know, I, I, I like that the NFL went ahead with the free agency, went ahead with the draft. It was a very emotional, interesting draft. Went ahead with the schedule release. But, you know, we're living, you know, kind of in fantasy land as far as that goes because it's still a few months away. You look at the other sports, they just have not been able to figure it out and get it done. Why? Because it's highly complicated, and it's honestly, it's, it's dangerous. There's no doubt about that. Now, as a follow-up, Bob, to Paul's point about perhaps some players not necessarily looking forward to immediately coming back, I'm curious from the CBA perspective, because as you alluded to, this is very much uncharted territory. If a player, even with testing, accessible, still is not comfortable – how are teams going to navigate a player not wanting to return, and it really has nothing to do with injury or the inability to practice, but it just has to do with more of fear and the mental side of things at this stage? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think there are going to be some, some situations where there may not be a definitive answer on that. However, I will say this. you know, Thankfully, the league and the players agreed on that long-term contract uh, CBA. Uh, back in March, because what that does is that they are working together hand in glove to fashion this policy moving forward. Even the reopening of, of the facilities, if you notice in the release of the details of it, that was done in cooperation with the NFL Players Association. So I don't think anything would be done um, on a large scale if the NFLPA didn't sign off on it. There's just It, it, it can't happen because there's this collective bargaining agreement and they, and they have to agree on that. But I do think you might see isolated cases where players are so concerned about their health and well-being, uh, about potentially bringing uh, the virus back home, like that's, you, know, you see healthcare workers, that's, that's one of their greatest fears and it's a real fear. So I, I think you will see some isolated cases, but as long as the NFL and the NFL Players Association do agree on a plan to start up, then I think the NFL would be in a position to say, well, you know, we, we really, we're going, we, we need the players here. They're required to be here. Would they go ahead and find players for not appearing? You know, that's where it gets a little bit dicey. It's obviously not a good look, but um, if the CBA mandates it and if the NFL and NFL Players Association agree, well, you know, they're, they're going to have a season. Bob, let me ask you this. If the schedule that has been released is going to hold, and I know that is the optimum scenario of a September 14th opening day, how soon does the NFL logistically have to get everything in order to make that happen? Because obviously a full training camp and a full preseason may not be possible. How much could they shrink that in your mind to still be able to make September 14th a reality? I would say, Paul, you can go back to the model uh, and the precedent set by the lockout in 2011, where I believe the I believe the CBA was agreed on on uh, August 4th, if I'm not mistaken. So somewhere right. in there, August 1st, right? So if you if you have that model, and then they started that season on time, they only missed the Hall of Fame game that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're looking at a month, and the players would only be comfortable if they had a month to ramp up. And, and train properly. Now, even Joe Judge made a point of this. Um, the injury rate in 2011 was really very high, and no accident, no off-season programs, um, no you know, limited training camp. You know, football is such a contact sport, and you physically have to ramp up and, and just go, you know, get off to a running start physically to be able to play. And they didn't have the benefit of that in 2011, and it resulted in a lot of injuries, and I think you'd see a similar situation this year. It's worse this year, honestly, because players aren't in their facilities working out, and they couldn't be in the lockout, but they, they could go to a gym. They could go to, you know, anywhere, any you know, place to, to rehab injuries that's very limited now. You know, I, I talked to a couple of agents a couple of weeks ago. They were saying, one of this guy says, you know, there's, there's a shortage of toilet paper, yes, but there's also a shortage of weights that, that players can get. Because everybody is trying to get weights and, and physical conditioning equipment for their homes because everybody's stuck at home and, and the health clubs are closed. So it's a really challenging situation, and what well, we're in May now. So I'd say well, once we get to July, then we're looking at, okay, what do we, what do we got here, fellas? Because we got we to make some decisions here. we got to open things up. 
we've got to be able to get the players in physically. This virtual training, no matter how you know much of a pretty picture you put on it, it's it's, it's impossible to get players ready for that. We're talking with Bob Glauber, NFL columnist for Newsday, and related to that, Bob. I think what's interesting is when you look specifically at the NFC East, you brought up Joe Judge and the Giants. You've got the Giants, you've got the Cowboys, you've got the Redskins. Three of the four teams in this division have completely new coaching staffs and also somewhat of a youth movement on their roster, at least in some facet of the team. And I remember you brought up the 2011 lockout. The same conversations were, well, teams with rookie quarterbacks, young teams, they're going to be certainly at a precarious spot compared to veteran teams. How much do you think that holds true again this time around, given the fact that players can't even work out themselves? Oh, it's an incredible challenge. And I almost think, and Joe Judge is not going to want to hear this because it's not in his DNA, but you really have to give the first-year coaches, especially the first-time first-year coaches, a pass. Um, And look, Joe Judge doesn't want to pass. He wants to play football, compete, coach, and and do the rest. You know, he doesn't care about these excuses. And I, I commend him for taking these questions about the disadvantage of being a rookie coach, not being able to be with their players, and turning it around and saying, well, you know, look, virtually these guys are very up to speed on computer stuff. We think it's an advantage. We think we can kind of work with that. Great. I mean, that's, that's what you have to do as a coach. But realistically, um, I think Judge is probably at the biggest disadvantage in the division um, because Rivera and McCarthy have had experience as head coaches. You know, not only does Joe Judge not have his players, right, but he, he doesn't – he can't be in person to go through the learning curve of what it is to be a head coach. And, and all coaches go through it. There's, there is a, there's an apprenticeship time when you go through learning what it is to be a head coach, when things fly at you on a daily basis – and you have to go through that to know what it is and to come out on the other side, whether you're going to be good or, or not. And Judge will not have that um, advantage, um, but, but at least McCarthy and Rivera have kind of been through the wars and know what it's like to, to lead a football team and to lead a football team as a first-year coach. And, and Judge is kind of flying blind when it comes to that. The point is well taken, Bob, and nobody can deny it. At the same time, I'm hearing from a lot of people around the NFL and even the college ranks that they are so impressed with Judge's coaching staff. The makeup of guys that he put on his staff roster has just impressed people left and right around the league. And even guys like Garrett and Kitchens, who have had coaching experience, are going to be guys he's going to lean on a lot. I wonder if you have also sensed the same type of of compliments from other people around the league in terms of what Joe has tried to put together. Yes. I mean, I think there is general agreement that Joe Judge is doing things and going about things the right way, getting people around him that, um, you know, not not yes men um, and not all the same. You know, he's got some some with college experience, you know, some with pro. And and I think I, I agree with you. Kitchens and Garrett will be good for Joe Judge to be able to lean on to get that um, advice just on what it's like to be a head coach. Garrett in particular because he, he had such a, a long run with Dallas and Kitchens only the one year um, in Cleveland. So, Yes, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a staff that is disparate in terms of its backgrounds and in terms of uh, I think the philosophies are the same. You know, work hard, be physical. Uh, all Joe Judge that, that that's what he's about. So I, I think, and I think Judge in particular has impressed people with his poise, with his uh, intelligence, with his vision, and, and that's a that's a big thing. Because I'll tell you, and I, and I think that there's something to be said when you're a writer, having done this for a long time, and Paul, you've been around a lot of coaches, you, you just kind of know, you know, when a coach talks, hey man, I got to pay attention. And when Parcells talked, I remember being nervous when I went into the, his press conferences. That, <laughs> I swear, I, I was anxious. Like, it was because you just never knew what was going to come out of it. You never knew if you were going to get challenged, and you had to be. You had to be on your toes, and then Hanley comes along, and you know it's obviously different for a number of reasons, but still, it was not the sad. Remember that the the intensity level went down. I could like relax, like okay, he wasn't going to challenge anybody, and you know, covering different coaches in different sports, you just know. And Judge is one of those guys where you better be paying attention, and if you're a reporter, you better have a tape recorder because the guy speaks incredibly fast, 
and he makes his points incredibly well. And like, <laughs> you better have a tape recorder to listen back because what he says, there's gold in those in those comments. And you know, when you listen back slowly and carefully, you know, you go, "Wow!" I mean, like, I didn't realize when he was saying that that was that was very very. Um, strong words and very intelligent words, and he's he's a smart guy, no question. He does appear to be well equipped for the curveball that society is throwing him right now. Yes, I would say so. Yes, and and I I liked. Remember his first conversation with us uh, after they locked things down. He was home in Massachusetts, and one of the first things he talked about was uh, a shout out to the first responders. And look, you know, everyone's appreciative of that, but but he kept coming back to it. And I, I found that to be, you know, not refreshing, but, you know, it was human. And Joe Judge is, is, is a human being who is kind of aware of what's going on around him and, and us. And I think he is not shying away from that. And you know what was really good at that? Coughlin was great at that. Coughlin always, went, whenever there was a, you know, like a societal catastrophe or, a, you know, some complicating factor, he was always good with that. Um, you know, the Sandy Hook shootings, man, it was such a difficult, sobering time for everybody. And I remember Coughlin, he just, you know, leaders kind of rise up in those kind of situations. And Coughlin was good. And, and Judge seems to have that. You know, we don't, we haven't seen him enough um, over a period of time to know whether that's a long-lasting thing. But, you know, in the in the brief time that he's been the coach, he, he seems to be impressive and kind of have a handle on how to do things. Well, Bob, related to your point about him appearing to be impressive and having a handle on things, the one thing, though, that he's always going to be associated with, and this is just because we always look at coaching trees when it comes to the NFL. He comes from the lineage of Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, and everybody looks at some of the other assistants that have come from those trees and how they have fared. The fact that you just brought up these circumstances a bit different, what he's dealing with, how much do you think perhaps those comparisons won't be as overwhelming maybe in the initial stages because of how different this environment is now? Yeah, that's a really good, interesting point. I hadn't thought of it like that, um, but neither, excuse me, neither Saban nor Belichick ever had to, you know, no one has had to deal with this until until now. Yeah. So, and, you know, we're going to be so, so obsessed with this moving forward until things do settle down that, that's going to be the overriding theme. It's not going to be, hey, is Joe Judge, you know, uh, going to kind of rewrite history of the coaching tree of Bill Belichick and Nick Saban? Some, you know, it's been a spotty tree. It's not been a fruitful uh, tree for the most part. Um, but I think Judge seems to be his own man enough where I don't, I don't think I worry about that. Um, but you, you can't ignore it. And you can't ignore the ultimate example was Eric Mangini when he coached the Jets. It was like he became this different person. Um, he just became who Bill Belichick thought he should be. Like, okay, what would Belichick do here? Let me do that. And he was robotic, and it just did not work out. And I think that's the ultimate example of you've got to be your own man, and you've got to do it your own way, and you're going to serve for fail or survive as yourself. So, like, don't worry about, like, trying to be another Belichick. And if Joe Judge is not worried about being another Bill Belichick or Nick Saban, he'll be fine. And it's like, it'll just be judged on the merits of who Joe Judge is, not not the fact that he worked for two of the greatest coaches in NFL and college history. Bob, as we sit here in the middle of May, let's talk X's and O's for just a second. The Giants may have as many as two dozen new players on their roster based on what they did in free agency and the draft. What specifically would be your biggest question on the field for what Joe is going to have to deal with as he tries to get this thing turned around? Um, just what you said, Paul. The fact that he's got so many new players on a new team. And when you I – mean, that's the biggest challenge for any coach is bringing these guys together and getting them better. Now – Bill Belichick was a master at it. Now, a lot of times, Belichick, even in his championship seasons, his teams would be really lousy in the first month. Not lousy, but you know, not not championship timber. You don't, you just didn't see it, right? A lot of two and two records in that first month. And I, I found that Belichick, he said something once after a Giants Patriots preseason game. I want to say it was two years ago, 
and he said, you know, the first month of the season, you're just trying to figure things out, right? You just you just don't know. And like, oh, I said, like, wow, that's kind of a kind of an interesting moment from Belichick that you know he didn't have all the answers, and that's so true. And it's so true of a first year coach with so many not only first year players but new players. You got a lot of free agent signings. Um, you've got to incorporate them all in, and that's where coaching comes in. And if he's a good coach, his team will get better over time. Whether it happens after the first half of the season, whether it happens after the first month, we don't know. But, you know, all things being equal, if we do have a full season, I would expect this team to be a better football team at the end than it would be at the beginning. And that, how much better? That That's going to be a direct reflection of how good a coach Joe Judge is in, in molding both the offense, defense, and special teams. Well, and I think a lot of it is going to depend on the play in the trenches, Bob, too. And it seems as if a big piece of the draft this year, as well as free agency to a certain degree, was to now protect Daniel Jones, your young quarterback, and also try to open up some holes for Saquon Barkley. From what you've seen the team address, specifically on the offensive line, how much do you think that is going to be a huge area to watch this season and perhaps a huge area that takes a significant step forward? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just because it's everything. It's, you know, that is going to be the area of concern and the area of observation that, you know, for starting with Daniel Jones, and you know, I, f- I found it interesting that Gettleman was really just telegraphed that first pick the last couple of years, you know, with Saquon and now uh, with Andrew Thomas. But, you know, you say, hey, Andrew, uh, Daniel Jones can't can't throw when he's on his back. You know, those comments, well, okay, he's, he's taking a tackle. There's no question. Just, it's just a matter of which one. So the offensive line is going to be the focus of this team, whether it be protecting Daniel Jones and whether it be opening things up for Saquon Barkley. I mean, it's and that's why it addresses two needs. Um, Thomas, he could have gone Isaiah, Isaiah, uh, but Simmons, but they didn't because they had a need on the offensive line for the pass protection and and the run production. So uh, I I think you can't underestimate the importance of how that offensive line is going to be, and and it will be a huge determining factor in how good the Giants will be. Final one for me, Bob. I really think that Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator, has the toughest job of anybody on that staff because he's got to come in here with his multiple scheme uh, system, his multiple versions of it, much like what Belichick has done with the Patriots. And he's got to try to implement that with no offseason to this team, knowing that there's also a bunch of new pieces as well, so there's not a lot of familiarity with a number of players who are going to be playing next to each other. And we all know that that unit was certainly on the down last year in terms of talent-wise. They've done a lot to try to make it better. I think he's got the biggest job of all. I mean, your thoughts? Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you there because the defense was as big a problem as any last year. And, you know, Daniel Jones could have – like, look at this. Look at the Washington game. You know, he's flinging it all over the place and having a great game, and Washington's still coming back. And the Tampa game. I mean, so the defense is definitely their Achilles heel right now. And there's no question that with all the different pieces, you know, and, and Gettleman did his best to, to try to address some needs in the secondary and at linebacker. Um, and, and there were good, solid moves, but you don't have that big-time pass rusher. You don't have, um, you don't have a collection of big-time pass rushers. I remember watching the replay of Super Bowl Forty Two um, against the Patriots, that first one. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that defense is so good. It's just unbelievable. And, you know, O.C. and Tuck and Strahan, just on and on. And Antonio Pierce, perfectly played game by the defense. But, like, wow, you just don't have that kind of talent on this year's team. And that's why I thought Simmons would have been – I would have had no problem with taking Isaiah Simmons with that top pick because they need – desperately need defensive playmakers, and, and they just don't have them right now. Bob, before we let you go, I want to go full circle back to where we started the conversation about this land of the unknown. And interestingly, Dr. Anthony Fauci had a conversation with Peter King in his latest NBC column. And one of the things that came up was in a hypothetical world, God forbid a star player test positive, multiple players, where maybe you'd get into a situation where 
You either have to remove a team from the schedule for a week. You have to quarantine a key player. I guess what I'm asking is how flexible from what you're hearing is the NFL in terms of adjustments needing to be made as the schedule plays out and circumstances changing because of how fluid this situation is? Yeah. Well, the fact is the NFL has been and will be flexible. And even if they're just appearing to move on and say, no, we're going to have a full season. Jeff Pash, a couple weeks ago, the lead attorney of the NFL, yeah, we're full, full season. Well, you know, fans in the stands. Um, they understand that things may change. Now, as far as flexibility, when, you know, if a player tests positive the night before a game and that team has got to be shut down or that player has got to be shut down for 14 days, I think you're, you're, you're going to another level. And that's the level of, we don't know if we can really do this. We don't. We just don't know if it's feasible. I mean, how how can you put off games? Because you're not only putting off a game for that team, but you're putting off two games for for the teams that they play. Yeah. So you know, how do you go about doing that? Uh, that's why I think this thing is highly complicated, and they are right now taking such a wait and see approach that it's the only the only choice they have. Absolutely. He is Bob Glober, NFL columnist for Newsday. Bob, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. I hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy, and hopefully we'll get back on the field sooner rather than later. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bob. Be well. All right, Paul, you too. Thanks for having me, and you guys stay well as well. Thanks again to Bob Glober, NFL Newsday columnist, for joining us. Some great insight on the land of the unknown, essentially, right now for the NFL. They are hopeful that we will kick things off in September, but Bob, at least weighing in on some of the discussions occurring behind closed doors in terms of the logistics and what else they may need to overcome from a testing standpoint. And speaking of the anticipation of the upcoming season, I know you and Jeff talked in great detail about the schedule, Paul, on Friday, but let's get into at least some of the main takeaways in terms of the structure of the schedule, because as you well know, I'm not a fan of strength of schedule, and I'm certainly not a fan of speculating about how difficult the stretch of a season may be in terms of week 14, 15, and 16. You have no idea how those teams are going to look, how the injury bug is going to come into play. But the one important takeaway, I think, from a structural standpoint for the schedule's sake is the Giants have five of their six divisional games laid out between weeks five and weeks 10. They do not have another divisional game than after week 10 until week 17 against the Cowboys. So one divisional game in the final six, everything really bunched together between, as I mentioned, weeks five and weeks 10. And normally we talk about, hey, the best way to win your division, the easiest path is take care of business in your division, win those divisional games. Well, the Giants are going to certainly have an opportunity to do that, Paul, but then there's going to be a big window where... Depending on how things play out, the only thing they'll be able to control is the matchup against the Cowboys in Week 17. So I found that interesting in terms of how they structured the Giants' divisional schedule. Yes, I agree with you, Lance. Uh, When speaking with Jeff about this on Friday, one of the points that I brought up to him, and it took him a second to think about it, but then he agreed, is that when you talk to coaches and players, they will always tell you that although wins and losses only count for one number in the standings, They really do count for two when you're within your division. Therefore, if you're going to emphasize your divisional games with that type of approach, your mental and emotional cost for those games is going to be much higher than it will be for other games. And when you tell a team that you're going to play five divisional games within six weeks, you are telling that team that you are basically going to go through hell. Because mentally and emotionally now, you've got to be at that two times level of sharpness, awareness, alertness, intensity, consistently. Not just on a week-in, week-out basis, but now you're saying one after the other, after the other, after the other. These games are like playoff games in some ways. And so that that compact uh, nature of those division games in the schedule will be extremely taxing on the Giants if this is the schedule indeed they wind up playing. Yeah, they've got a visit to the Cowboys in Week 5, followed by a home game against the Redskins, visit to the Eagles. Then they take a brief break with a game on Monday night against the Bucks, And then before you know it, they're visiting the Redskins and they're home against the Eagles. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of familiarity within the division in a very close stretch of time. Yeah. Speaking of the layout, they also have... 
Back-to-back road games twice this season, at the Rams, at the Cowboys in 4-5, and five, then at the Bengals and at the Seahawks in 12-13, and 13, and then they have back-to-back home games week 14 and 15 against the Cardinals and the Browns. And the reason I bring that up, when you look at the 2019 schedule, Paul, it really was a revolving alternate door. Home away, home away. That's pretty much what I recall the bulk of 2019 being. This year, a little bit different. And also, you've got a little bit more travel because clearly they're going to be going to the West Coast a few more times. Well, Lance, I'm going to give the fans some insight into what I do every year when the schedule comes out because there are five main points that I will always analyze. And, you know, you and I have never actually had this conversation. In fact, I'm telling this publicly for the first time after 37 years of covering this team in this How league. How about this, Jim? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to release something to the folks, and it, it gives them some insight into what I look at strategically because you know who your opponents are going to be because of the NFL schedule formula, right? Absolutely. Okay, so so what can you look at strategically as being the variables that can impact the schedule that you have as opposed to a different schedule that may be presented to you? Okay, in not necessarily in order, but these are the five things that I always look for. Number one, where is your bye week? Now, why? Obviously, because you'd like to have your team catch a second wind at some point. And as Jeff Fiegels has said many times, he thinks the bye week is better off somewhere in the vicinity of game six or seven, as opposed to a little bit later on like it is for the Giants this year when it's going to be after the November 15th game against the Philadelphia Eagles. I agree with him. I do think because of what you usually have with training camp in the preseason, it is better to have it a couple of weeks earlier than where the Giants have it this year. Point number two is where are your division games? We've already discussed that. They are compact. I think that is always a detriment to a team. Number three, oh, and, and also, uh, do you have division games in the, in the second part of your schedule as you try to climb uphill if you need to without scoreboard watching? Well, the Giants aren't going to have that luxury. Because once they play the Eagles on November 15th, they're not back in the division again until yep. the season finale against the Cowboys, which means a lot of scoreboard watching. And in my opinion, that is a very painful way to have to go through November and December. All right, number three is travel, because you have to worry about certain fatigue issues, especially when you're coming back from the West Coast. Are you coming back uh, to, to a short week, to a long week, to a difficult uh, divisional opponent following a long trip to the West Coast? Those kinds of things. Now, you look at the Giants schedule as it's been printed now. They're in Los Angeles on a Sunday, October 4th. What happens? After coming back from that long trip, now they've got to go immediately on the road to a division foe in Dallas. That is a bit of a sticky spot you would like to have avoided. But according to the schedule that's out, that's one you're going to have to deal with. What do I also look at? Number four, do you end the season at home simply because of the home field advantage with the crowd? You'd like to believe that if you need that game, you will be at home in your home building and you may get some edge from your crowd and it could be of some benefit to you. And number five, I always look at how many primetime games you have because the primetime games do a lot to mess with the coaches and what they do in terms of setting up their weekly schedule in preparation for the following week's games. It also screws up with your team's players because they've got certain sleeping patterns and they've got certain practice patterns and meeting patterns that they're used to. So when you have a season with five or six primetime games, that does create more of an effort for you to try to get things on the norm, so to speak. The Giants with only three primetime games in this year's schedule, I think that is actually a very good thing to have so few. Those are the five points of emphasis that I look at from a strategic perspective whenever the schedule gets released. See, you've broken news here today, Lance. There you go. Look at that. And that was just purely by chance, too. I didn't even know that we were going to get this treat over the course of Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. I want to piggyback off of a few things you mentioned. In terms of the turnarounds within the schedule, I agree with you. I always look at that, too. Now, just to look at some of the turnarounds that the Giants have to deal with, they're going to have the Thursday night game at Philadelphia this season, week 7, October 22nd. So that's Sunday. They're going to be home against the Redskins. So the good news is, even though it's going to be a short week, 
you're going to make a short trip Mm -hmm. because you're only going to Philly. So that I view, to your point, as a positive. Then, after the Thursday game, they've got a lengthy turnaround because then they don't play again until Monday night at home against Tampa Bay. So they're not traveling, and they're going to have a lot of time to regroup. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So then after you play the Monday night game, it's a short week. You're now going to play Sunday, November 8th, week 9, and you're playing a divisional game, you're only going down to D.C. to play the Redskins. So all in all, when you look at the turnarounds, I don't think from a geographical standpoint, that's a terrible, precarious spot for the Giants this season. Well, even the December 6th game in Seattle, they come home to play the Cardinals on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, Uh, That's not painful. That's actually something that you would like. It's a non-divisional opponent and it's a home game, and it's on Sunday. I don't think you could lay lay it out any better than that if you're the Giants coming back from Seattle. 100%. And you mentioned you always look for the number of primetime games, and the Giants are going to have back-to-back primetime games in Week 7 and 8 because of the Thursday night game and the Monday night game. What I look at from a broadcasting standpoint, and this is why I'm very pleased with the Giants' schedule, I don't think the fans are looking at it through this lens, 10 of the 16 games, as it stands right now, are scheduled to kick off at 1 p.m. Eastern. And as far as I'm concerned, Paul, that is music to my ears. (laughs) Okay? Because for those of us who cover the team and have to broadcast, we like getting things started early and finished early. At least that's how I look at it. Understand this. NBC's flex schedule begins, I believe, in week five. So it's going to be very interesting to see if the Giants actually get off to a better start than maybe some people think, whether NBC starts to pilfer a couple of those games in the second half of the year. Then that's why I said as it stands right now, because I don't (laughs) want to jinx anything. To your point, you're right. It's a toss-up what's going to happen in the second half of the season because of the ability to flex out games and bring in teams that may have been pleasant surprises. So that's pretty much the generic layout of the land in terms of the Giants' schedule. And all you can look at it at at this point, as Paul and I mentioned, is geographically what the Giants need to contend with from travel and structurally. The opponents, the strength of schedule is an irrelevant conversation because all of those numbers and stats are based on 2019 results. As we move forward here, we want to have an opportunity to answer some of your questions that you continue to submit, and we certainly appreciate all of those questions continuing to come in. Remember, you can head to Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. You could use hashtag Giants chat on Twitter, and you could also directly send them in to us on Twitter. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. All right, this first question, Paul, comes from Steven. And he says, with many DBs and linebackers battling for roster spots, special teams may tell who makes the team. Can you discuss what traits coaches seek out from gunners, return men, punt coverage tacklers, etc.? And then he throws in there, did Sam Beal demonstrate those traits last season? Speed, vision, willingness to hit. It's that simple. Those are the things, and when I say willingness to hit, I'm also talking about, yeah, you're a sound tackler. doesn't do much if you hit a guy and he bounces off you and runs for another 10 yards. So so let me say, when I mean willingness to hit, I mean he's a tackler, a willing and able tackler, okay? that Those are the qualities, and really Jeff Fiegels is better to answer this question than I am because he is a connoisseur of special teams, and rightfully so. But if you've got those things... They're going, they're going to serve you very, very well on special teams. And trust me, those are traits that Joe Judge is going to put at the very core of his microscope. Well, because that's his background. And also Thomas McGahee. The special teams unit has drastically improved over the last few seasons. Let's not overlook that. The other trait that I would throw in to what you just put out there, I think vision is another key element if you're going to play special teams, Paul. And what I Is mean, that not the number two thing that I said? Did you say that? Okay. Speed, I, vision, okay. and hitting. I apologize. You threw out That's a lot okay. at once, so that was me just completely <laughs> passing by it. But I That's guess, okay. I guess my point is I want to expand a little bit more on your point about vision. So I should have worded it that way. And when you are going through a big group of players that are in your way and also may be preventing an ideal line of vision, I think you really have to have the ability to see the field and anticipate 
the next two or three steps that may come your way and how you react to that. That, I think, and I'm not saying, by the way, that that's not an important element on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. I just think on special teams, that to me is an extremely attractive and necessary trait because a big part of making a play on special teams is trying to outwit and outthink the guy opposite you and also all the way down the field and try to anticipate the best lane and best route to take to get into position to make a play, or if you're on the offensive side of the ball, obviously to find a hole and take it to the house. Well, I think we all talk about on defense how important it is to avoid traffic. You know, guys in the front seven are going to get caught in a lot of traffic because there are blockers constantly getting in their way of trying to reach the ball carrier. Well, on special teams, <laughs> traffic, it's like going down the New Jersey turnpike at rush hour. <laughs> I mean, there are people flying all over the place. And if you can have good vision and find ways to avoid the traffic, you're going to be very well served on either side of the special teams units. And as far as this draft class is concerned, we've done a lot of interviews with representatives from the coaching staff for each of these players. I think the common theme is a lot of these players were more than willing to contribute on special teams and already have a number of those characteristics. Darnay mm-hmm. Holmes was a return guy. Carter Coughlin and Chris Williamson from Minnesota were two guys that have special teams experience. Brunson, Cam Brown from Penn State. So they're adding a lot of guys that started off earlier in their careers, at least, Paul, in that department. So I think that's going to bode well to at least give Joe Judge and Thomas McGahey multiple options to toy with putting them in various spots and it also goes without saying if you're a rookie if you're a late round pick the only way you're getting on the field in the early stages of your career is through special teams so I think that to me perhaps gives the Giants some experimentation on that side of the ball oh I don't think there's any doubt and they'll have to figure out who's the best at it because you can only put 11 guys on the field at once I think every one of those guys even though uh, Zach Diasi was a long snapper, and obviously there's only one of those on the field. They would be wise to look at some of his tape because, as Fegels would always say to me, well, you know, you can't hit the snapper, all right, yeah. because that was ruled out a few years ago. But here's the thing. Diasi knew how to avoid the traffic once he started running downfield. Think about it, Lance. How many times was he with within the first or second guy Many downfield. And look, Zach Diassi was a linebacker by trade, and he wasn't even that fast. <laughs> but he was able to avoid the traffic. That's how he got down there so quickly all the time because he knew that he was able to see the field so well that these other people on the other side of the ball were not going to impede him and hold him up. He was able to avoid traffic much like frogger in the old video game or is that before you're no i know exactly what you're talking okay about. yeah he was frogger yeah. and so i i think everybody who plays special teams in terms of coverage should should really pay more attention to the skill that maybe can be developed i'm not sure if it can be but if it can be boy that's a valuable tool Now, the last component of the question by Stephen, which was submitted, was about Sam Beal and whether or not he showed some of those characteristics, Paul, that you and I were just talking about to maybe take on a bigger role. If you look at his snap count, first of all, from 2019, he had just 39 snaps on special teams. To put that in perspective, that was a little over 8.5% of special team snaps. So to partially answer Stephen's question, he didn't have a humongous role, Paul, last season on special teams. No, he did not. And so uh, I think he's already gotten the memo, though. Joe Judge is the new head coach. Joe Judge loves special teams. In fact, he lives for special teams. Uh, I would like to believe that any of those players who are either in the secondary, linebacking core, wide receiver core, I'd like to believe that all of those guys have an understanding that, oh, yeah, it might help my case if I'm (laughs) really good on special teams. I mean, could you, could you write it any louder or scream it any louder? I think the message is 100% clear. And this is what I'll also add to your point. If you're Sam Beal, last season a big part was, hey, I got to get my feet wet. I was a red shirt player for pretty much two seasons. Now let me get more and more comfortable out there and let's show the coaching staff what I could do on the defensive side of the ball. Now you're learning not only a new defense this year, Paul, but to your point, you're also having to 
get used to a new coach with a new philosophy where special teams is a huge key component. And on top of that, they've also added Darnay Holmes into the mix. So you got another corner. You got more competition. And some of the undrafted players. So if I'm Sam Beal, I think a big component and a big part of this offseason I'm focusing on is, yes, what are ways that I could get on the field for special teams? Where can I contribute the most? And how versatile can I be on that side of the ball? That, to me, is a big part, I think, of the conversation he needs to have with himself. Well, let me put it to you this way, Lance. I remember Lawrence Taylor actually participating in some special teams over the course of his career. Okay? It was, it was something that Lawrence just did. He was a tremendous athlete, a tremendous competitor, and he was going to do everything he could to help his team win, including play on special teams. Jesse Armstead was, was on special teams, too, during his career. Don't be surprised if Joe Judge has some bigger names on special teams. And I know that will make some people cringe. But as Fiegels has said, I think Joe Judge is determined to have the best special teams unit in the National Football League because he believes that any advantage that they can gain on special teams is going to help his team win more games and be more competitive than they have been in the last few years. It's all about field position. If you can help your offense not have to go 80 to 90 yards and you prevent your defense from having to defend just half the field and you force the opposition to go 80 to 9 yards, it can certainly be a huge benefit. Let's go to our second question. This comes from one fishy scientist. On Twitter, why do you guys think there's a delay in signing Marcus Golden? Seems like a no-brainer signing 10 sacks, stayed healthy, good teammate, and a veteran presence, and a clear position of need for the Giants relatively, in my opinion. Well, first of all, the Giants gave Marcus Golden the unrestricted free agent tender. And what that means is he can only play for the Giants in 2020 if no other team opts to sign him by July 22nd. This is a very rare tender, first of all, Paul, that was handed out. We discussed this on the show a few weeks ago, and it doesn't mean that ultimately they're going to be able to work something out. But what do we always talk about, Paul? We always say it takes two to tango. And whenever I hear a question that's worded, why didn't the team do this or why didn't the player do this, you have to have a meeting of the minds. You have to have both parties meet halfway at least. And I can't speak for Marcus Golden. I can't speak for the team, Paul, in terms of what conversations have taken place and where both parties feel. But I'm certainly at least comfortable in saying Marcus Golden as representatives, once the season ended, said to themselves, he's coming off a 10-sack year. He proved he's fully healthy. Hey, let's go out and test the market and see whether or not we could capitalize, given the fact that he's still not that far removed from a torn ACL. He was motivated, Paul, entering this season and signing a one-year deal with the Giants to not just prove to the Giants, but to prove to the league that he could still play at a high level. So I won't blame Marcus Golden and his reps if their philosophy at the end of the season was, we want to test the market, we want to see what we can get. But like anything else, the market's volatile. Paul, look at what happened with Jadevian Clowney. Clowney went in this offseason, thought he was going to get X amount of dollars. That hasn't come to fruition. And I think to a certain degree, maybe Golden has realized that as well. Well, let's put it this way. There are a number of reasons why a free agent does not re-sign with his former team. Certainly, contract terms, that's number one. Number two, could be scheme fit, especially yeah. when you have a change in coaching staff. Absolutely. I mean, so many people don't think about that, but it's important. Number three simply could be that there's a familiarity with certain players. For example, Patrick Graham, the Giants' new defensive coordinator, knows those two Packers linebackers from when he was an assistant and a linebackers coach for Green Bay. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that Marcus Golden did anything wrong. It just means that they were in a position to bring in players that are more familiar with the coaches that they now have, much like Ebner was brought in to be on special teams. Michael Thomas made the Pro Bowl two years ago. Michael Thomas was a very good player who gave them some snaps at safety and was a terrific locker room presence. This says nothing to devalue Michael Thomas as an NFL football player. It's simply that if you're going to have one guy on your team who is supposedly the ace on specials, he's the guy, so to speak, who's going to be the flagship of that unit. Well, Judge went and got Ebner because he was that guy in New England, and he wants his guy. 
It says nothing derogatory about Michael Thomas. And so he goes and signs with Houston. So when you look at that situation, you say, well, how would it apply to the linebackers? Well, perhaps Fackrell is that guy for Graham, and Golden is not. It doesn't mean anything derogatory about Marcus Golden in any way. He had a terrific season last year. He did, and he was a relentless player. There were so many second-effort plays that he made. I think that was well-documented. We talked about him in that light all season long. Relationships is a big part of the NFL, and I'll take your point a step further. Remember, a big reason why Marcus Golden also signed with the Giants is because of James Betcher's presence Mm -hmm. as the defensive coordinator, Paul. Let's not forget about that, because if there was any coach that knew what Golden went through with respect to the torn ACL, and Betcher spoke volumes of Golden and how hard he was working and how motivated he was every time Betcher met with the media or had an opportunity to answer a question about Golden, so that familiarity provided a great opportunity for Golden to join the team. Now, all of a sudden, you insert Patrick Graham. He's got a history with not just Kyler Fackrell, who you mentioned, but Blake Martinez. It's no surprise he brings in two guys who know his scheme, and he also saw Thrive in his one season there with both of them in Green Bay. And Fackrell was sort of like that Marcus Golden player. And I'm not saying that they're exactly the same, but Fackrell had that double-digit sack season and then all of a sudden, Preston Smith and Zadarius Smith come into town, and perhaps the opportunities are not there where they were the previous season when he was with Graham. So I'm sure Graham's philosophy is, hey, if I now get Fackrell back into my defense, we don't have Preston Smith, we don't have Zadarius Smith, maybe he can go back to having that double-digit sack season, which is exactly what Golden did once he was reunited and fully healthy with James Betcher. I think the parallel is there. Doesn't mean the results are going to be there, Paul, but I do see some similarities in terms of the storyline there. The bottom line and the only point that I think we'd like to make clear is that nobody is disparaging Marcus Golden in any way. He is a quality football player. He belongs in the National Football League, and he should help somebody during the 2020 season. Wherever that is, I don't know. But Marcus Golden's a guy who I'll always give him a thumbs up. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy for him every time he makes a play because he's a good dude, good teammate, good player. And, uh, you know, it's easy to root for a guy like him. I echo your sentiments. I don't think there's anything that reflected negatively on him last season with the Giants. He came to work every day, worked hard, and the results are fully demonstrated in terms of his statistics as well as the big game-changing plays that he provided. Let's go to another question we have submitted. This comes from Scott. Do you think that the final win against Washington, he's referring to last season against the Redskins, will turn into a blessing in disguise? And not because Andrew Thomas perhaps is better than Chase Young, but because it finally forced or led the team to prioritize the offensive line, and we now have a young core in terms of the offensive line to lead us into the future. Well, I answered him on Twitter already the other day, Lance, and here's what I will say. I, I, I told him then in, in the Twitter or in, in the tweet, I will tell our listeners now. There's no doubt in my mind that the Giants would have had a much more difficult struggle had they been in a position at number two to try to pick the offensive tackle either at two or at 36 as opposed to picking him at four and at 36. Because the decision between Andrew Thomas, who was clearly the number one tackle on their board, and Chase Young is a much more difficult decision than Isaiah Simmons against Andrew Thomas. So I don't know, and I'm not going to get hypothetical on this. I'm not even going to go there. I'm simply going to say there's no doubt that the Giants wanted to take an offensive tackle in the first round. Would they have traded down? Would they have taken Chase Young? Would they have then traded up from 36 to get back into the first round to take a tackle? I I just don't know. What I do know is this. They were extremely pleased to get what they got, and there's no point in looking back on it. I will I will say that Andrew Thomas is probably going to serve them well for two full contracts, if not longer, and that makes the point moot. Well, I said this on an earlier program. If the Giants walk away with the two bookends to their offensive line, meaning the left and the right tackles for the future between Andrew Thomas and Matt Paird, 
then to me, that is a significant contribution to helping this team move forward as opposed to perhaps what Chase Young single-handedly would have done for the defense. That's the way that I'm looking at it. And I think Chase Young is a great player, and I think he's going to have a significant impact for the Washington Redskins. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it through the lens of the Giants and their needs— It wasn't just bringing in one playmaker on defense, Paul, that was going to be the savior. It was also shoring up the offensive line and adding depth to that position. So between Thomas, Paert, Shane Lemieux, and what they did in free agency, if that combination, if that group as a whole, when we look back, helps them not just for one season but multiple seasons— then I don't really think it's even necessary to have that conversation or look at it, whether it's a blessing in disguise, because it just goes to show you one guy alone is not going to solve the Giants' issues. So whether it had been Isaiah Simmons, whether it would have been Chase Young, I think there were other holes on the Giants' defense, which they look to address, obviously, with the draft, that would have needed to still been tackled even if you brought in that big-time playmaker. So I think that's how you have to look at this question as opposed to it just being a debate over Andrew Thomas versus Chase Young or Andrew Thomas versus Isaiah Simmons. Well, let's look at it this way. The Giants really, really, and I mean really, can I say it even four or five times, wanted an offensive tackle in the first two rounds. And they made it very clear that Andrew Thomas was their number one target. If they passed on him and taken any, anybody else, I don't care if it was Akuda, Simmons, Young, whatever it was going to be in the top four of the draft. As it stands, and I know we can't necessarily go back, but if you want to do it for the point of conversation, fine. There were five offensive tackles taken in the first round, Lance. Yeah. If you had waited till 36, which way back when at the Combine was my plan, Wait to take the tackle. Take Simmons and take the tackle at 36. Thank goodness I came to my senses in time and and converted my opinion to, to Andrew Thomas. But if I had stayed with my original premise, the Giants would have been left to pick from Ezra Cleveland, Josh Jones, who of course went much later than that. And really, was there anybody else who was even considered to be worth the value of the 36th pick at offensive tackle on the board when the Giants selected? The answer is no. In fact, Cleveland, as you recall, went a heck of a lot lower than that at 58 to Minnesota. He didn't even go close to number 36. So if you strictly go by the Giants' desire to grab a premier offensive tackle— They must have felt, despite the comments by Dave Gettleman, that this was a deep offensive tackle draft, they must have truly felt that Andrew Thomas really was the best guy and it wasn't going to be close when you got to pick number 36 and you had to select from the second level of tackles on the board. Well, and I think that also, to your point, and Dave Gettleman even said this multiple times, the priority coming into the draft, whether they had the second pick or they had the fourth pick or whatever pick they had was always to beef up the offensive line because Dave Gettleman made it very clear. You draft your franchise quarterback at Daniel Jones. You already have Saquon Barkley. The next step is, okay, let's make sure we take care of business with respect to the guys who play in front of them. So I think that was a philosophy no matter where they were going to end up selecting, going back to the questioner's point about that result of the Giants-Redskins game. And here's the other thing. If McKinney who many people believe was a steal where he was selected for the Giants, if he turns out to be a tremendous defensive playmaker, I think that also defeats the purpose of still having the debate over Simmons and Chase Young if you wind up getting great value at 36 with Mm -hmm. McKinney after all. Well, I'll ask you this right now. As you stand here today, even without these guys hitting the field, do you feel better if you're the Giants for having Thomas and McKinney, or Ezra Cleveland and Isaiah Simmons. I suspect you're better off with the first pair. Well, because I think you get the much higher rated offensive lineman based on the comparison. Andrew Thomas, in terms of where he was being analyzed versus Ezra Cleveland, no disrespect to Ezra Cleveland, but I don't think it's as close. And then with McKinney and Simmons, here's the other thing you got to look at it. McKinney, in terms of 
his physique and his skill set versus Simmons, you're talking a lot more safety with McKinney versus Simmons, you're looking at linebacker with the potential to play safety. So once again, how you view those players is different depending on where you choose to play them within your defense. So I think when you analyze where Thomas was ranked compared to Cleveland, you're getting the much higher ranked offensive lineman. And then with the Simmons-McKinney pick debate, you may be looking at two completely different players when it's all said and done, Paul, well, depending let's go on through, where the Cardinals play. Let's Simmons. go through the hypothetical from the tweeter. Would you feel better with Thomas and McKinney or Young and Cleveland? Well, I go back to my answer. I think and I, and I think your answer better is actually, with Thomas and McKinney. And I think it's it still holds water. I yeah. agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah. Now, getting back to the, the questioner's point, it was more about Chase Young and Andrew Thomas. But once again, that's a hypothetical world because the way the result played out, the Giants realistically couldn't have thought about taking Chase Young anyway in this well, year's draft. The point is, if you're going to take the defensive player with the first pick, whether it's number two or number four you know the Giants are going to take the offensive tackle with their next pick. That's quite clear because the only thing 100%. that could possibly have detoured them from taking the offensive tackle would have been a defensive guy that they simply could not pass up. And that did not occur, as it turned out. Andrew Thomas gets completely eliminated from the conversation if you take Chase Young in the first round. So you know mm-hmm. you're not getting Young. To your point, okay, now you have to settle for a lower-rated offensive lineman. So there's a downgrade there compared to Andrew Thomas. And then to my point on the defensive side of the ball, if you're talking about Chase Young and McKinney, well, Young and McKinney play two completely different positions, so the comparison's not fair. But once again, if you're talking about Simmons and McKinney, I think a lot of it has to do with where are you lining up that player on defense. And if you walk away with the best safety in the draft, which is very possible with McKinney, versus you walk away with the best linebacker in the draft, which is very possible the Cardinals did with Simmons, it's more about, well, what was your greater need, Paul? Did you need to address your safety, or did you need to address your linebacker? Because you can't guarantee me that how all of these guys played in college is exactly how they're going to be utilized on the NFL level. Sure, sure. So that's another reason why it's a very hard, I think, comparison to make when it's all said and done. But we certainly appreciate All three of those questions that were submitted. And once again, do not shy away from continuing to submit your questions at Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. That is going to wrap up Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We appreciate everybody for tuning in. Thanks again to Bob Glober for joining us earlier in the program, weighing in on some storylines connected to the timeline for the NFL to return. Paul, appreciate the time as always and look forward to carrying on the conversation later this week. Yeah, good stuff today again, Lance. Thanks. So that is going to do it for us here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday and always stay locked to Giants.com for the latest. Have a good one.